but KBYR. Opinions and views expressed on Alaska Outdoors magazine are not necessarily the opinions and views of staff and management of KBYR. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Alaska Outdoors magazine. Welcome to Alaska Outdoors Magazine with host Evan Swenson. You're invited to come along with us as we bring you accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. It's your KBYR window to Alaska's outdoors. This is a live show originating in Anchorage. I'm Evan Swenson, and today we'll be visiting with Wayne Mergler, editor of The Last New Land. Wayne's a knowledgeable Alaskan on Alaskan and Alaska Outdoors. We'll learn something today about our state we didn't know before and save time for one last cast. Today's one last cast is about a, one of my first dog sled rides and is titled Mush You Huskies. Let's talk. Let's talk with Wayne Mergler. Uh, Wayne, good afternoon. Hello, Evan. Did you notice they introduced us by saying that uh, the the opinions expressed were not necessarily <laughs> that of the staff and management? I did notice that, and I thought, oh, that's a relief. Good. <laughs> <laughs> now, whose opinion was they worried about, yours or mine? I, I have no idea, but uh, I, I hope it's not mine, but it could possibly be. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I want you to know as we start out today that I don't necessarily agree with the opinions of the staff and management ah, all the time well, either. So so healthy. maybe we ought to start the program out uh, by saying that uh, the opinions expressed by Wayne and Evan are not, not necessarily expressed by the staff and management. Absolutely. Uh, we don't agree with that necessarily. <laughs> that would be great, sure. <laughs> Wayne, you've, you're the editor mm -hmm. of a, a book called The Last New Land. Right. Now, that's an, an anthology. Is that the it correct is way? It is an anthology, now, yes. Wh what is an anthology? Well, an anthology is a collection of writing by various writers, usually on a particular theme or subject. Or, In other words, my job, I didn't write the book so much as I just put it together. Oh, you're um, not the writer then? Well, I, I wrote much of it. I wrote uh, the introductory pieces. Uh -huh. There's a general introduction. There are little introductions to every uh, selection in the book. But uh, my, my main role was to select the material that's in the book and put it all together. So uh, I, I could uh, be called the author in a broad sense, but technically I'm the editor of the book uh, because it is a collection of writings by everybody else, <laughs> everybody but me, actually. Um, but to to answer your question more specifically, an anthology is simply that it's a collection of writings by various people, usually on a particular theme. And in, in this case, the theme is, of course, Alaska. Now, you say the last new land. That's a catchy little t phrase there. Is that... Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. And that's... I, I, I didn't choose that title, by the way. Uh, I had submitted a different title entirely to the publishers, and they decided that they liked The Last New Land better. It was something they came up with. Um, and I thought, fine, that's a good title. But it never occurred to me that there would be even any remote controversy associated with that title. But I have since learned <laughs> that um, some of Alaska's native people have said, you know, we like your book, but The Last New Land uh, doesn't apply to us at all. They don't think of this as new land at all. This is their ancestral land, and it's been here for a long, long time. And they said this is a very uh, white perspective to think of Alaska as new land. And, and of course, I had never thought of that, nor had my publishers. So uh, that's, uh, that's a good point. Well, was, was the book written to the Native uh, community? No, it was written for a general audience. Um, 
I had actually uh, a non-Alaskan audience in mind when mm -hmm. I put the book together because I, uh, I work part-time in uh, a couple of bookstores here in town, and I noticed that tourists in the summertime were always looking for a specific book. They wanted a little Jack London and a little Robert Service and a little this and that, and they wanted to be exposed to uh, Alaskan uh, experiences and lifestyle and culture, and they wanted some native folklore, and they wanted all this, and they wanted it all in one book. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, uh, that book doesn't exist. And, and uh, they, one, uh, one lady said, well, you know, somebody should write one. And I started thinking about that, and I thought, well, gee, she's right, somebody should, and why not me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that's really how it started. So, so actually, the audience I had in mind was the primarily tourists and people who want to know more about Alaska. Mm -hmm. Also, there is this, unfortunately, there's this um, outlook out there that uh, there's not a lot of culture in Alaska, that it's kind of this frontier wilderness place. And uh, I know that a friend of mine a couple years ago was lobbying to have a uh, writer's convention here in Alaska. And uh, the, she got a letter from somebody in New York or Boston or someplace who said, oh, no, we could never have that convention in Alaska because there's no tradition of literature in Alaska. And I wanted this book to prove otherwise, mm -hmm. to show people that there's an enormous amount of Alaskan literature and, and really good literature that's been written about this place. Um, and so that was another uh, reason I had for putting the book together, just to show people that Alaskans are literary and literate. You're the stimulus then for bringing this together. Someone didn't come to you and say, I've got this collection, but you actually started looking for a right. collection to... to to satisfy the needs of the tourist that comes for a week and wants to see all of Alaska and then take one book <laughs> home that covers everything that they probably wanted to see but didn't. That's pretty much it. I, but I have since um, learned that uh, the, book, uh, the book does so much more than that. I mean, that, that people who have lived in Alaska all their lives are, are really enjoying the book. It's, it's a perfect book for not only people who know nothing about Alaska, but it's also the perfect book for people who love Alaska because it it celebrates i think for the most part uh living in alaska and what uh, and how how much variety is here you know i mean in in this particular book i tried to kind of put together every conceivable alaskan experience i could find out there and there are uh native writers non-native writers male writers female writers writers who have lived here all their lives writers who just visited here hmm. you know so it but it shows a, a big uh, overall perspective. You know, people tend to think of Alaskans as, you know, we all mush to work in our dog sleds and we all live in igloos. And, we, and you know, and this, this sure. book, I hope, shows people that uh, we have a variety of uh, experiences and lifestyles up here. Wayne, we're going to be back in just a moment and talk okay. to you some more about the last new land. But we are going to take a break, but we'll be right back. There's an author masterminds book by Robin Bearfield, Alaska wilderness mystery author, Murder Over Kodiak. When a float plane mysteriously explodes over the Alaska wilderness, investigators begin digging. Was the target of the bomb the U.S. senator or her husband, the cannery owner, the refuge manager, or the pilot? You'll find all of Robin's Alaska wilderness mystery novels with the publication's consultant's logo on the cover at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. If you'd like to be an Author Masterminds published author like Robin Bearfield, Alaska Wilderness Mystery author, 
publication consultants can help. If you've written a book, if you're writing a book, or if you're thinking about writing a book, call for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. Call 349-2424. Murder Over Kodiak was just a dream until Robin Bearfield ordered her own Bringing Your Book to Market. Publication consultants will send you the booklet free. Call 349-2424 for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. 349-2424. Robin Bearfield called, and now Murder Over Kodiak is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. You're listening to Alaska Outdoor Magazine on 700 KBYR. Well, welcome back to your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors, Alaska Outdoor Magazine. We're glad you decided to come along with us. Now let's talk some more with uh, Wayne Mergler. Uh, Wayne, I've uh, kind of uh, the opinion, and <laughs> you correct me if I'm wrong here, okay. or substantiate it, that, that the first day of publishing school, when the publishers go to publishing school, whatever that is, they teach them three things. <laughs> and that is that one, the, the uh, title of the book that the author submits is not the right one. <laughs> the opening paragraph is incorrect, and the, the first title or the first chapter that the author submits as the first chapter of the book probably needs to be elsewhere in the book. Yeah, that sounds pretty accurate to me. That's about I, what they do. <laughs> well, my my book was a little different being a, an anthology. I didn't have to submit a first chapter or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, I, I think anybody who's ever published anything no, learns quickly that whatever vision he or she had about this book is going to be completely changed by the by the time <laughs> it's through, and and I think most of us resist those kinds of uh, interferences, if you will, from our editors and publishers. We think, oh, they're ruining my book. They're they're changing this and changing that, and they don't they don't understand. It's not my book anymore. It's you know we all feel that way, but I think generally they're right, and. Um, because they know, you know, publishing, as you know well, is a business, and they know what's going to work for them and what's mm -hmm. going to sell and what's going to uh, reach the audience. Um, so, you know, my, my book is different in many ways uh, than, than I originally conceived it to be. But do you feel that the publisher improved it then? Yes, I who, did. Who was your publisher, by the Alaska way? Alaska Northwest Books. Alaska Northwest. Out of Seattle. Uh -huh. And... Um, Yes, they were. They made some changes that initially I thought, oh no, this is going to ruin everything. But now, looking at the finished product, I think they were right. And I think that's generally the case with publishers and editors. I think that there's one thing that they do uh, teach, and, and, and we're joking about the other, uh, obviously, uh -huh. which it appears that that happens, that they <laughs> want to change everything. But one thing that publishers do know, I, I feel, and, and see what you think about this, authors are in literature. Right. Uh, biz uh, publishers are in business. Right. And right. so they have to, somewhere they got to meet to let the, the author know that this is a business, not literature. Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's that universal uh, conflict between art and, and practicality, you uh -huh. know. Yeah. And uh, I, I think uh, most of us, you know, we're, we're so close to the things we write 
that we, we can get so caught up and say, oh, this is wonderful, isn't this beautiful prose? But, <laughs> your, but your editor is liable to say, well, it, it might be beautiful prose, but no one's going to read this unless you cut it in half or, you know. <laughs> so I think generally, there, if you have a good editor, you should trust him and go with what he or she says. Now, as the editor of this, did you also have an editor at Northwest? That, I did. Uh-huh. Yes, well, there are two kinds of editors, uh, sort of a big E and a little E. I was the editor of this book, or... Really, that's just another name for the author, but technically... You wasn't the author, so you couldn't be... Because most of the writing was done by other people. Mm -hmm. You know, I've just put it all together. But but then I had an editor, yes, someone who worked with me and, and made suggestions and changes. And there were things that I had selected for the book that she said, no, I don't like this, pick something else. There were suggestions that she made of pieces I should include that I hadn't thought to include. And... We argued. Sometimes she won, sometimes I won. You know, she would say, I don't like this, take it out. And I would say, no, no, I've got to have that. That's wonderful. And I would argue with her. And like I said, she won about half of those, and I won the other half. And ultimately, I think uh, I'm I'm very pleased with the book. I think that uh, ultimately she made the right decisions. There are a couple of things that uh, I might have done differently if, left alone without you know without an editor but generally i i'm very pleased with the book i think it's a great book now when you started to do this did you have in mind some writings or did you have to go search them out find authors Uh, how did you come by that well both i the book is arranged thematically so there are you know hunting stories and survival stories and stories about urban alaska and stories about animals and all that kind of stuff so i had in my mind Stories, poems, essays, things that would fit into those categories. Uh-huh. And, and so there, there were ones that I just simply wanted in there, that I just pieces that I loved and thought would be very appropriate for one of those themes. Then, once I did that, I realized there were gaps. There were, whole, there were things missing. You know, I didn't have enough hunting stories, or I didn't have enough of So then I had to go in search of things that uh-huh. would fit into the, the themes. And every now and then, uh, my publisher would say well how about considering this here's something i like you know and so that's what we did so you, it was a, a co-op effort well definitely. it, it yeah. was yeah, yeah but yeah. you know as 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 writers always say in their author notes to their books you know no no book is ever written by one person sure. ever they're always it's always a team effort with publishers and editors and all of that sort of thing absolutely we're going to take a break but we'll be right back and talk more with wayne mergler Stay tuned to Alaska Outdoor Magazine, accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. There's an author masterminds book by Walter Grant, one of America's enduring patriot authors, The Club. Jeff arrived home, was arrested, tried, found guilty, and executed for his fiancée's murder, a crime he did not commit. He awoke from a drug-induced coma to learn his execution had been faked, and now he owed the club the next 10 years of his life. He accepted the club's conditions and became a member. There was no choice. You'll find all of Walter's The Club series novels with the publication consultant's logo on the cover at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. If you'd like to be an author mastermind's published author like Walter Grant, one of America's enduring patriot authors, publication consultants can help. If you've written a book, if you're writing a book, or if you're thinking about writing a book, call for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. 
Call 349-2424. The club was just a dream until Walter Grant ordered his own Bring In Your Book to Market. Publication consultants will send you the booklet free. Call 349-2424 for the free booklet Bring In Your Book to Market. 349-2424. Walter Grant called, and now the club is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. You're listening to Alaska Outdoor Magazine on 700 KBYR. Welcome back to your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors, Alaska Outdoor Magazine. We're glad you decided to come along with us. Okay, let's talk more. Let's talk with Wayne Mergler about uh, the uh, last new land. Uh, Wayne, as we uh, went away... You was just telling us uh, about the book and how you got involved in it. Now let's talk about the book. Okay. Uh, in that, you said that you had some uh, outdoor hunting type stories. Right. In that, right? Uh, tell us just an example, a hunting story. Well, uh, there's a whole uh, section called the hunt, and uh, in in that section, I, there are various stories about uh, hunting trips of various sorts, and there are also some fishing stories because I mean, technically. Fishing is hunting. Hunting, sure. You know, you're hunting for fish. Um, there are some native legends in there. There's one about mammoth hunting, uh, an, an, an old uh, Inuit legend about mammoth hunting. And uh, there's also a legend about the ten-footed polar bear, which is, uh, I think, a terrific story. No, ten-footed. Right. That doesn't mean he was ten-foot tall. No, no he okay. had ten feet. That's, <laughs> that's uh, not in Boone and Crockett. That must be a, no, a native legend. That is a legend. That's uh -huh, a native okay. legend, but it's a, it's, a, it's a really neat one. And then there are a couple of um, oh, moose hunting stories. There's, there's one uh, by Tom Walker, which is from his Shadows on the Tundra book, if you, uh -huh. if you know that book. Uh, there's um, a hunting story uh, from Richard Nelson's Shadow of the Hunter, where in this particular story they're hunting um, uh, seal seal hunting in the uh -huh. wintertime, you know. Uh, there are several, several stories about hunting, bear hunting, you know, from grizzlies to uh, polar bears to black bears to all kinds of things. There's a, a, a story about uh, sheep hunting, doll sheep hunting, by Pam Houston from a, a very well-known book called Cowboys Are My Weakness. <laughs> um, and she, she actually did some um, guiding up here in Alaska for a few summers, and she has a, a great story called Doll about uh, a sheep hunt which she manages to relate to other more sort of cosmic issues about uh, relationships between men and women, that sort of thing. Um, there's a, a she-fish uh, story uh, by Nick Jans about hunting, catching, fishing for she-fish. Uh -huh. um, oh, they're just... Probably on the Kobuk, huh? Yes. Okay. And, uh, Out of Kayana. And, and there's poetry, you know, hunting poetry, oh, if really? you can imagine such a thing. Uh, it's just it, there's all kinds of stuff in here. Hmm. Now, when you was uh, when you was bringing this book together, mm -hmm. uh, Wayne, uh, is there uh, things that you learned about Alaska that you did not know before? I oh yeah yeah I've well I've lived here for thirty years so I felt I felt real knowledgeable. I thought you know I just knew everything, um, but uh, I learned a great deal. Um, I I learned for example I had to include in this book certain aspects of Alaskan living that uh, I was not especially familiar with. For example, I'm not a mountaineer, a mountaineering person, but we obviously needed some mountain climbing stories. So I had to read 
read mountaineering books, which I probably would not have done. Um, I al- we also had, uh, there, there are several flying stories in here, stories about bush pilots and stories about just the, the whole aviation scene in Alaska, which, as you know, has been tremendously important in Alaskan history. Sure. But I didn't care anything about flying. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not a pilot. I don't, uh, I don't like to get in those little planes. Um, so I had never, in all my years here, I'd never really read any of the old aviation tales. So I had to read all of those. And I guess to answer your question, I, I learned how incredibly diverse life is up here. You know, I mean, it, there, there is no, if someone asked me, which actually they have, but, but when people ask me, what is a typical Alaskan like, or what is a typical day in the life of somebody who lives in Alaska, it's impossible to answer that because we're just all so diverse and different. Do you think now that you've uh, explored that with your book and done the research, do you think that you have your arms around Alaska now, or do you are you just still uh, searching? Well, n- yes and no. I mean, the, the kind of a wimpy answer, I know. But I, it, yes, I feel really in touch with with the place where I live now. I really do, and with the the incredible variety of voices and lifestyle and experience here, I really feel in touch with that. But at the same time, this place continues to intrigue me. It, it, it remains mysterious, it remains challenging, it remains interesting. There are still things about Alaska that the world and even Alaskans are still finding out. You know, I mean, the, someone I talked to once said that the more we know about this place, the less we know about this place. Sure. You know? yeah. And I think that's, that's really true. It's, a, it's an intriguing place to live. Was there anything, uh, Wayne, before you uh, put this book out, was there anything, any truth that you knew about Alaska that you was absolutely positive of? And then when you got through the book and everything, all of a sudden you discovered that you had had a false impression or the thing that you knew was uh, maybe completely reversed. Um, I'm sure that must have happened. I, I can't think of an example right uh-huh. now, but but um, I was constantly delighted by things that I, I think you know. I, I think to really now what how I would answer that would be that in in, in terms of literary uh, literary quality, um, I knew that Alaskan writing and Alaskan literature was more more diverse and more impressive than the average person outside Alaska ever knew. I knew that going into it, but it wasn't until I started putting this book together that I saw just the overwhelming, enormous amount of really fine writing, prose, poetry, uh, fiction, nonfiction, essays, that that people have... I mean, this state has inspired so many people to write about it, just like I guess it inspires painting painters to paint mm-hmm. it, you know. But I can't imagine, I mean, I don't mean, <laughs> I don't mean to insult anyone's homeland, but I can't imagine Iowa producing nearly so many writers and artists and poets as Alaska has done. I mean, there's just something about Alaska that seems to force people almost to be creative. Um, it's an energy. You know, a friend of mine who uh, lives in the lower 48 comes up here often, and he, he says, I, I can't get over the energy in this place. He says, everyone here is energetic. Even the old-timers here are so much more energetic than, than he feels they are where he lives, which mm-hmm. is on the East Coast in the lower 48. And I, I feel that. And I, putting the book together, I, I really felt that. I felt like there's just so much creativity in this place. 
Um, it's 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 exciting to live here. It really is. Well, when uh, when you was discovering uh, this. And, and you got the materials here. Did you find that it was the old-timers that had been here a long time that uh, was the contributors of this energy and this uh-huh. new, new uh, you know, exciting thing about Alaska? Or was it the relative newcomer? Uh, now, see, you weren't on the park strip uh, to see the bonfire <laughs> at the time of statehood. No. So even though you've been here 30 years, you're still a tea chocolate. I, I, I guess that's true. <laughs> I, um, you know, it, really, I have to say the old-timers are my favorites. There are some relative newcomers to Alaska who have written beautifully about Alaska, and I certainly wouldn't want to shortchange their contribution at all. Um, but but my favorites are the old timers, the ones that were here before uh, snowmobiles and shopping malls, and you know the the ones who who well like people like Hudson Stuck, you know Hudson Stuck. I've Stuck. Heard, yeah, I heard of him. He uh, he was this uh, just the name. Well, he he was a. Uh, um, an Episcopal uh, deacon who traveled by dog sled all over the interior, sort of preaching the gospel uh, and going from like mission to mission and church. But he covered just literally thousands of miles in the most severe uh, climatic conditions um, by dog sled. This was around the turn of the century, Mm -hmm. the first decade of the century. And his, um, his telling of his experiences are just fascinating. And, and, uh, Oh, there, there are just so many of them, you know, that uh, the, the, the old timers who were here from the gold rush, I would say, to maybe World War II, that era. Those are my favorites. Is there anything in your book, uh, Wayne, that you look at it now and you say, I wish that wasn't there or I wish I had something else in its place? No, not a thing. I, I really genuinely like everything that's in there. I do sometimes say, gee, I wish there was something in there that's not there. Another 32 pages. Yeah, yeah. I w- but, but again, when you're dealing with publishers, they're practical. If it left up to me, this would be probably a 2,000-page book. They had, a certain, <laughs> they had a certain limit of pages, sure. you know. So there are things, there are wonderful things that are not in the book that I wish were there. But, um, but it just wasn't possible to put everything. But, but the things that are not there, I think, are still fairly represented by other things that are there. You know, so um, I don't feel like there's a particular Alaskan um, experience. Not a big hole, not, huh? No, I don't think yeah. so. I think um, virtually every experience that I felt should be in there is in there in one form or another. Do you have a favorite, uh, Wayne, of any of the stories in there? Do you have oh. one that, that you we, you may enjoy going back over again and reading it another time, even though you... Well, you know, I, I have several favorites, um, but uh, I really like... Um, I like Margaret Murray's book about growing up in Alaska around the turn of the century. It's, it's a charming book. Um, I really like, um, there, there's a story called The Battle of the Giants by, by Douglas Burden, which is about a, a moose hunt that he went on the Kenai to, to, to hunt the giant Kenai moose, and he comes upon these two um, bull moose who are fighting it out, you know, uh, the clash of antlers and racks and all. It, it's it's thrilling, exciting. And stuff. he was able to get the the noise and the smell and that in there. He was, and you know that's something in my thirty years I've never seen. I mean, I've never seen two bull moose really attacking each other, and it's he he describes it vividly as a, just a thrilling thing to watch and something that, gosh, Alaska is one of the very few places in the world where you can experience that. You know. So um, and there's several. There's a, a really charming poem in here by a young man in Juneau named Tom Linklater, who uh, 
this is the first thing he's ever published, the poem that's in here, but it's just about how he came up here for a visit. He was going to stay two weeks, and he's still here now, like 12 years later, which I think is a real typical oh, yeah. thing for Alaskans. And, and just what charmed him so about the place and how he fell in love with it when he got here, you know, I think that's just a great poem that expresses what so many of us feel. You know, I, I suspect, uh, Wayne, that you could write another anthology, as it were, <laughs> about experiences of Alaskans on that very subject of those of us that came for a particular reason, right. for a specific length of time, that uh, that those reasons in time have long since right. expired. And well, it, it's funny you should mention that, because in this uh, book, in this anthology, there's a section called Arrivals, and every story or poem in there is about what brought people here. Oh, really? You know, people, they, they all came here for different reasons. Some uh, came to escape the past, and some came because they were looking for something new and different. Some came for adventure. Some came uh, after World War One. Some sort of disillusioned, shell-shocked GIs showed up in Alaska and sort of were healed by living here, you know? Mm -hmm. And they're just these wonderful reasons why people have come. And the probably as many reasons as you have people who live here, you know, for coming here. Um, but many of them had no intention of staying. They came for a brief visit, they were curious about Alaska, and then they never left 50-some. Charles Brower, if you know of Charles Brower up in uh, um, the Arctic region, um, his, his book is 50 Years Below Zero. Yes. He had no intention of staying here. He came up for a brief visit and stayed 50 years, you know, and I think that's that that's common here, really. That's kind of a that's a typical thing. Many of the the, the folks I've heard these stories and have known a couple. There used to be a, a man that had the Santa Claus look that used to drive a big front end loader. Right, uh, right. And you know, I used to know his name too. And I that's, PhD. Uh, yeah, that's that's a very educated person, right. but did did not want to pursue that but but cleaned parking lots in uh -huh, the winter on a front uh -huh. end loader the, yeah. the, the the person that lives at shell lake uh, the same did you find those kind of people oh, that were had escaped from the college or whatever oh, very educated and one of the one people of, the, of culture right and one of the great things about alaska and reading about alaska is the characters just these enormous wonderful eccentric characters that come out of this place Characters with character, I exactly. guess. Exactly. Huh? Yeah, like Joe Spinard and his yellow taxi cab. Do you know about him? I, I understand that uh, that's how the the Spinard Road right. got got there because it was the shortest way between downtown and the airport. Absolutely. And Joe Spinard had one of the few automobiles in Anchorage, and it was yellow. And he he was a cab driver. <laughs> and and anybody who didn't want to walk through the mud or through the snow would hire Joe to drive him around. Now, do you have uh, other books on the horizon, Wayne? Uh, well, has this like, got you you going now? I, I'm primarily a fiction writer, and like everybody else, I'm writing a novel. We'll see how that works out. <laughs> but uh, but I am writing a novel about Alaska, and I hope someday that'll that'll uh, bear fruit, as they say. Now, tell me where we can uh, obtain now last new land. Anywhere where books are sold. Um, uh -huh. Uh, certainly the, the local uh, booksellers such as Cyrano's and Cook Inlet Books and the Metro all carry it, but you can also find it at those big mega stores. And, and uh, at, there was a time it was even being sold at uh, Cars and Sam's Club and those places too. I'm not sure if it's still there or not, but it's, uh, it's been out about a year now, but it's, it's available just about anywhere. And it's made you rich and famous, of course. <laughs> well, no, but, uh, but it's brought me some new friends, which is nice. <laughs>
Well, Wayne, thank you very much for thank being our you. guest today thank and you, visiting Evan. with your book, The Last New Land. Uh, we have run out of time, but before we close the show, there's just time for one last cast. Today's one last cast is titled, Mush, You Huskies. I've seen every world championship dog race for the last four decades. Mushing for me was a spectator sport before I met Fred Agri. On our first meeting, Fred invited me on a dog, mu dog mushing trip. One Friday in late March, I decided to take Agri up on the invitation. The day was warm. The weather the whole week suggested spring was just around the corner. The desire to get out had infected me, and by Friday I was on the critical list. Remembering Agri's invitation, it seemed like a proper prescription. Rx, take thou this. The cure was only a telephone call away. Fred said he would be glad to take me for a ride. Bring your camera and come up for breakfast so we can get an early start. Early start. I quit playing golf when my buddies kept insisting on 6 a.m. tea times. I've been trying to organize the fishing guide union into mandatory 9 a.m. wake-up calls. Now this dog driver wants me to get an early start. It was, however, this telephone call that convinced me dog mushers have a different relationship with time. As Fred said, be here between 9 and 9.30 for breakfast. I wonder if he plays golf or is interested in being a fishing guide. Forty dogs howled a welcome as I turned off the highway and came down the drive to Agri's place. The noise must have signaled our arrival long before I could see the house, for Agri was waiting in the doorway when I pulled in. Fred Agri looks like a musher. He wears shoe packs on the end closest to the ground and a salt and pepper beard on the other. Like most mushers, his uniform consists of wool pants and a shirt sprinkled with traces of dog hair. While we were eating our breakfast, one of the kennel's handlers loaded the team and all the gear into a truck. Because the snow was too sparse and wet on the trails nearby, we trucked a hatcher pass. Fred's dogs are gentle, obedient, and well-mannered. As soon as the sleds were removed from the top of the truck, we began unloading the dogs. I guess for the same reason the biggest kid in school is called Tiny, Agri's pure white leader is named Blackie. Blackie, the first dog out, is turned loose to roam around while the other dogs are unloaded. Fred explains the extra privileges makes the dog feel like a leader, and he gains respect from the other dogs. They accept his leadership, and then he maintains control of the rest of the team. Fred unloaded the other dogs from their boxes and tied them close to the truck. Fred whistled for Blackie, who came running, anxious to take his place at the top of the line. Once in place, Blackie pulled the line tight and maintained order until all the dogs were hooked up. A couple of the dogs acted up, and Fred bit their ear, making them yelp. Fred explained he never bites hard enough to really hurt. He claims it embarrasses the dog to cry out, and they shape up. It seemed to work. By experience, Blackie knew when everything was ready and it was time to go. He began jumping and pulling, trying to get the sled to move. I was instructed to get into a sled. Fred pulled the brakes, and with a gentle hike, we were off down the trail. The dog's feet flipped snow in my face like small tires spinning to get traction. The noise of the sled runner sliding over the snow propelled by 11 set of feet was the only sound to break the wilderness stillness. Dogs are directed by verbal commands, gee and ha, for turning and naturally woe for stop. We topped a small hill and Fred yelled, whoa, this was where we rested. The dogs took in the view and changed drivers. Mount McKinley was directly ahead. We were separated from the highest mountain in North America by 150 miles of wilderness. Even at that distance, the 20,300-foot-high mountain looked enormous. Fred got into the sled, and I became a musher. Not only did the ride take us into the backcountry, but I imagined that I was back in history to the days of the gold rush and the trapper. 
before I knew it, we were back at the cabin, and it was time to come back to the 20th century and to go home. We'll be back Tuesday in two and invite you to come along with us. When you go outdoors, take a young person with you and teach them what it means to be a sportsman. Sportsmanship begins before you get into the field. If you're a true sportsman, you're a sportsman all the time, even while driving to the fishing hole or hunting area, or even in town going to or coming from work. Drive safely and be courteous in the field and on the road. It's been said, when I do good, I feel good. Being courteous in the field and on the road is good, and it leaves you feeling good. Goodbye and good luck. May God bless you in the land of the midnight sun, and may your days be happy and long in Alaska's outdoors. Tuesday, as always, we'll bring you accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. In the meantime, keep in touch.